I had a scary moment at Morrison's the other day. And uh, I was, uh, this wasn't the one where I took a photo of myself instead of videoing myself, uh, inviting someone to Alpha. This was the one uh, in Morrison's where I was walking towards the exit, and then a small child in a trolley looked up and went, Daddy! <laughs> and my life flashed before my eyes, and I thought, maybe I'm 30 years older than I think I am, but no. Uh, I can, don't worry, you don't need to worry about that. He wasn't my child. Um, but he was initially delighted to see this generic gentleman who he believed to be his father. As he drew, uh, he was delighted initially, but then as I drew nearer, his expression changed from confusion to fear of this man who was getting closer and closer. But thankfully, he didn't burst into tears, and the security guard didn't see me, and I just carried on straight past him. But the poor lad, he quickly realized I wasn't his father and, I wasn't, and, and that he wasn't my son. But he was clearly used to crying out to his actual dad with some enthusiasm and joy and expected some kind of similar response. And today, as we look at the Lord's Prayer, I want to investigate how we approach our Father in heaven based on what we know of his character. And last week, uh, Tim kicked us off into this Culture of Prayer series with eight excellent reasons to use the Lord's Prayer in your prayer life. And you can listen to it again on the website if you want to. But today, as we continue in that series, let's look at the very first line of the Lord's Prayer, which I'm sure a lot of you know very well, but in case you don't know where it is, um, one of the two uh, places you can find it is Matthew 6, verse 9b, where we say... Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And this first part of the sentence is known as the address. It sets us up for the following petitions and supplications. And it's really the starting point for Jesus' prayer, the one that he taught his disciples to pray. And I believe it should bring us to a place of awe and intimacy with our Father before we move on to anything else. And so I've got three points for us to go through this morning as we drill down into these few words. And the first is become in awe of God. The second is experience intimacy with God the Father. And three, find the balance. Realize your standing before God. And just a quick caveat on that. I haven't made a typo and meant to have written you are. I've, I've gone for your because we have to realize our standing before God, where we are at. Where are we in front of God? So I'm going to pray and then we're going to begin. Father God, We want to give you glory in this place for everything that has occurred already on this day. For a time of worship where we just declared our souls are alive with worship. We want to thank you for that. We want to thank you for tongues and interpretation. And we want to thank you for those testimonies that pointed out just how interested and how loving and how caring you are. Because it's not only the big things that matter to you, it's the little things as well. So I pray as we look at your word this morning, would you bless us? Would you send your Holy Spirit? to meet with us and speak to us in your name. Amen. So, point one, become in awe of God the Father. So before we get into anything else, we've got to recognize who this is that we're bringing our prayers to. And there may be some of those among us who don't know God very well or have never picked up a Bible. And I just want to assure you that that is okay. Rest assured, you too can sit in awe of the amazing God that we serve and that we love, you need only to observe what he's done and what he's like. Now, quick description of our God. He's three in one. He's what we call Trinitarian, and that is a totally different sermon altogether that we could go into. But uh, just briefly, 
there's three persons and one God. God the Father, God the Son, who's called Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit. And there is hierarchy in the Trinity as well. God the Father is the one that we're going to be focusing on mainly today. We're looking at the Father's character. But also, Jesus, the Son, is God, and also the Holy Spirit is Son as well, and that's who we pray by. But focusing in on God the Father, he is the creator, along with Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the maker of heaven and earth, and he created you. How many of you can see me? That's encouraging. Well, that's because you've got a visual cortex in your brain made by God, a visual cortex that contains 110 million cones, 7 million rods, and about 1 million nerve fibers, all working in harmony so you can see me. It's good, isn't it? All humans, plants, animals, trees, planets, and stars are made by our God. He is the incredible creator. In the book of John in the New Testament, chapter 1, verse 3, when referring to Jesus, the text says this, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Our God lays claim to creation, to the building of the foundations of the earth, and creation itself declares his glory. And you can read all about that in the book of Psalms. Got the time. And in the book of Romans in the New Testament, in chapter 1, verse 20, Paul, who is an apostle who loves sharing the good news about God, said this, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. So those that don't know our Father in heaven this morning, you have no excuse. All creation proclaims his eternal power and his divine nature. It's an invitation. It's signposting you to him because our God wants to know you and wants you to know him so you too can pray the Lord's Prayer with integrity. And if you want to hear more about creation, then come back next week as Dale continues his Genesis series where he talks all about it. So as well as being infinitely creative, Christians also rejoice in our God's amazing character, what he is like. Who God is speaks volumes. And when we come to pray, even recalling his character like this should make us go, wow. Now you and I have got certain characteristics. Uh, We can be known for our tidiness, our punctuality, our quick wit, or our gentleness. But we are limited. And we can't really be compared to the amazing character of the God of the Bible, the Father that we know. Our God's character is like a precious diamond with many, many facets. And we find in the Bible, these facets are reflected uh, all over the place, all the way through the New Testament and the Old Testament. And if we look into the Old Testament, um, there are lots of ways that God is referred to. He has many, many names. And we find that within his name are reflections of his character. So I'm just going to name four of them for you. Uh, There are many, many more. So there's one uh, of God's names called Adonai. In Genesis 15.2, you can find it, and it means the Lord, the master. He is the master. And if you want to have a little giggle in your life group one week um, and you're reading in the New Testament, then I just recommend that you look up the Hawaiian pigeon translation of the Bible and see where God is referred to in that, because in that, God is called Davos. And every time the Lord comes up, it's Davos, and it's hilarious, and it's even more funny when Paul reads it, uh, and in his slightly Yorkshire accent. It's great um, being Hawaiian at the same time. But 
Lord, the Lord, the Master, Adonai. And then there's Yahweh, I am who I am. Often translated the Lord in capital letters in your Bible, it's in there 6,807 times. It means I am who I am, the God who is always there. Then there's Jehovah Jireh. Jehovah means the Lord, and Jireh means will provide. He's the God of provision. If you've read the rest of the Lord's Prayer, you know that later on in the prayer, we ask for God's provision. And he is the Lord will provide. He's also Jehovah Shalom, the Lord our peace. And it's not like peace as in peace and quiet. It's kind of wholesome peace. It's that shalom meaning complete contentment and fulfillment. He's the God of that. He's the Lord of that. And so these are just some of the names that encapsulate God's wonderful, wonderful character. And if we go ahead to the New Testament as well, we get further information about our Father in heaven. In 1 John 4, to 7 to 8, it says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And one of the overarching characteristics of our God is his love. It is in everything. It is spread to us. It is uh, infectious. It is contagious. It is enormous. God's love for you, if you don't know him this morning, is uncontainable. So you've heard what he's done, and you've heard a bit about what he's like, what do you think it would be like to encounter the Father God? Good question. Well, there's an account from the prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament where he had a vision or a dream of the most holy God. And uh, Isaiah wrote this account hundreds of years before Jesus was born. And uh, more recently than that, Francis Chan spoke about this uh, at New Day 2017. And uh, the account comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. And I'm glad the youth are smiling because they're remembering that, that preach from him with joy. But I'm going to read Isaiah 6, 1 to 7 to you. And uh, if you want to, perhaps close your eyes and just imagine this scene. Just imagine this moment. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and their temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. We're going to spend uh, a few more minutes just walking through these verses, and we're going to try to put ourselves in Isaiah's shoes so we can encounter or try and imagine what he encountered when he encountered the Father God. In verse 1, it says that the year King Uzziah died, and that's a significant year, 
because King Isaiah was a really good king. He was an excellent military leader, and he kept the people of the nation safe. And so when he died, they began just to freak out and go, oh no, the king's died, what are we going to do? Our borders are going to be invaded, that's it, we're done for. And it's interesting that this is the year that this vision comes to Isaiah, because while everyone seems to be freaking out, he gets this most valuable perspective in that same year. When everyone's saying, oh, the king's dead, what are we going to do, we're no longer safe? Isaiah can respond after this by saying, it doesn't matter about the little king down there on the earth, on the little throne. We need to look at the king of the universe up in heaven and look to him. It's him. It's he's the one we need to ask to help us. And Isaiah gets to see the Lord Almighty on his throne. And I don't know what you imagine when you think of the Lord Almighty, but do you ever imagine him on a throne? Well, that's exactly what Isaiah sees. It says, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Think of the biggest room you've ever walked into, and then imagine it filled with this robe that leads up to a throne that is high and exalted in the distance. And then imagine the next thing he sees, the seraphim above the throne, shouting, holy, 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 and as they shout, the door door. Uh, frames are shaking and the thresholds are rocking and smoke fills the whole temple. Then he notices the detail. They're covered. Their face is covered and their toes are covered. And it's because the God they're looking at, the king of the universe, is so holy, so pure, so set apart from us, they can't even look at him. I wonder what would be the first words out of your mouth at that moment. Well, in verse 5, we get, Isaiah, he says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Almighty. Isaiah uses the strongest language possible, and he declares, I'm dead, that's it. He knows no one who is unholy can look at the Holy King and live. And he says, this is it, I'm done for, a number's up. And the first thing that comes to mind in the presence of the Most Holy God is his own sinfulness. He thinks about the things he said, the words that have come out of his mouth and the words of those around him. And he knows he's unholy by his own admission because of the things that he's spoken. And then another amazing moment occurs in verse 6 and 7. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, see, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Who tells angels what to do? God does. God sends one of the seraphim, one of these angels, to go and touch Isaiah with something so pure, a live coal from the very altar of God to make his lips clean and to atone for his sin, to take his sin Away, he saves him from certain death. I don't know if you can read that passage and imagine how scared you'd be in the presence of the Lord Almighty, knowing about, thinking about the things you've said, or the things you've thought, the things you've done, and yet now here you are in the presence of God. And the question that comes to mind for us when we're looking at the Lord's Prayer is, 
Is that how we feel when we pray? Are we in awe of God? Have you ever met anyone uh, who says, when I meet God, I'm going to have some things to say to him? Yeah, you should just laugh in their face because they clearly haven't read Isaiah 6. They haven't read about how petrifying this would be to be in the presence of someone so holy. They don't seem to know what they're talking about. They need to know, though, that encountering God is a scary prospect if they don't understand his awesomeness. And to give God glory when we pray, when we say, hallowed be your name, we need to be in awe of him. We need to become reverent. It says in Hebrews that because of his reverence, Jesus was heard. Because he was reverent going to God the Father. So that's point one. We need to become in awe of God. Point two is experience intimacy with God the Father. So we've touched on the awe part of beginning to pray the Lord's Prayer. Now we need to examine intimacy that Jesus invites us to have with our Father in heaven. And in the first century AD, when Jesus lived, um, the Jews had a very exalted view of God based on those Old Testament scriptures, which we were kind of reading from, and many, many other things. The Old Testament included their history of the nation and the books of the prophets and so on. And it had given Israel a really healthy perspective, in a sense, on who God is, because they recognized that he was the reason that they had been freed from the land of Egypt through many miracles, that he had given them the law, that God had given them everything in order to be where they are in that day. And therefore, because of his holiness, which was referred to so much in the Old Testament, he was perceived as almost unreachable and to be feared. And based on that account of Isaiah, you can see why. And during the Old Testament, God had been referred to as the father of Israel in Jeremiah 31, 9, among other references, but no one had claimed him, the Lord Almighty, to be their personal father. No one had dared to do that. No such level of intimacy was expected. The Lord was far too holy to be closely associated with sinful man. And so, Jesus breaks all convention when he says, this then is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. You can imagine the shock on the disciples' faces around him when they go, did he just say, Our Father? Maybe they went a bit tense. Maybe they didn't know what to say in response and the discomfort as it grows around the room. They know there might be others around them or nearby that have only really perceived Jesus to be a man and therefore naming God as his Father is further blasphemy. But Jesus, being who he is, being the Son of God, is in that unique position to call him Father in that moment. But then he says, disciples, say our Father when you pray. And the word I believe in Greek is patea, and in in Aramaic is Abba. And this word Abba was used by Jewish children to address their earthly fathers and convey intimacy in that relationship. Abba pointed them to a place of love, warmth, and vulnerability with the Father. And there's a wonderful uniqueness about this invitation from Jesus to say Abba. He instructs us to say our Father, and for us Christians here at Church Together, it's ours. We share him in community. We all relate back to him. We all can draw near to him. And that's the kind of relationship with God that is unique to us. I did a little bit of research, but I'm not aware 
of any other religion that has a relationship with God in the same way we do. There are, there are religions out there that have a relationship with a God who they perceive as a kind of father of things, but there's not a relationship with God in the same way as Jesus is telling us to have an intimate, vulnerable one. Now, you may be saying and thinking in your own mind, this is paradoxical, Quincy. Your two points don't really add up here because Isaiah nearly died in God's presence. And you're saying we can speak to God and call him Father. How does that work? Well, it delights me to tell you that our awesome God, our awesome and holy God made it possible. He has made it possible for us to have intimacy with him through faith in Jesus Christ. And through that faith, we are adopted as sons and daughters, and we gain access to the Father God in that way. The Apostle Paul told the Galatian Christians in the New Testament, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And Jesus himself tells his disciples, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and believed and have believed that I came from God. And that's John 16, 27. To put our faith in Jesus means believing that he is the Son of God. When a sinful human being places their faith in the perfect Jesus Christ, a great exchange occurs and new birth takes place spiritually inside that person. Sinners are born again and made holy. Now, if you think back to Isaiah, Isaiah received a live coal to his unclean lips to atone for his guilt. Well, Jesus came to earth only to die and be resurrected so we could receive atonement for all our sins, thoughts, words, deeds, past, present, and future. And not only that, not only are we forgiven and saved from the sins that we have committed, but Christ's perfection is credited to us. You get a positive record. You don't go from negative just to zero. You go from negative to positive, and those positives are all Christ, and they're accredited to you. You're born again by faith, faith alone in Jesus Christ. And with forgiveness of sin comes freedom, and freedom, joy, so we rejoice in our relationship with the Trinitarian God. The interpretation we heard earlier on from the the tongue was one of adoration of a father who could be a severe judge over us, but he's our friend, he's our father all at once, and that's all because of Jesus that we have a relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinitarian God. Now, once you're in Christ, you're safe and secure, you're adopted, and you can approach the Father just like children can, just like Jesus can. And Christians gain access to the Father, not based on what we've done, but simply our new position as in Christ, sons and daughters of Christ. Now, who here has seen the West Wing? (laughs) I'm currently trying to get Sophie to watch all seven series, and so far, about halfway through series one, she's doing great. But it's all about the White House and the president and his staff. And uh, the example, the illustration I want to use here is of that very situation. Try Try not to imagine the current US president, that won't help you with this, but imagine a really good president uh, uh, who is, is gentle and kind and helpful and very, very clever uh, in this case. And um, in the West Wing, the staff have to have badges and credentials and accomplishments credited to their name by the things they've achieved in order to enter into the Oval Office 
where the president does his work and has conversations. And uh, they have to wait, they have to knock, they have to talk to Mrs. Lanningham, the secretary, in order to get through the door just to have an audience with the president. However, the president's daughter can just waltz right in and she just bounds in and she can spend time with President Bartlett from the West Wing and talk to him and uh, have a conversation about the day and what they've been going through and she can tease him a little bit and wind him up and, and then she can just bound out again. And it's amazing. It's a wonderful thing to see in this show. When she comes in, the president changes as well. His facial expression changes because he's no longer focused on what he was doing. His full attention is given to his daughter. And that's a little bit of an impression of what we're, we're like. That's, a, that's an illustration of what, what it is like for us and God now we're in Christ. We don't have to do anything. We don't have to achieve a certain amount of uh, degrees or masters or anything to get our way to him we can just walk right in because we're in Christ, adopted as sons and daughters. So when we pray, we're in awe of this mighty God. Yes. We're also comforted by the fact that we're his sons and daughters. So how do we find the balance between those two? Well, that concludes point number two. It takes us to point number three. We have to realize our standing before God. And it's a bit of an application point. It's a uh, we need to get our head around this. We need to understand how we can change our thinking to become more reverent, yet remain very close to God in response to who he is, in, in response to what we know of him. And so to help us, um, I've borrowed some of Tim Keller's uh, book uh, on prayer because he delivers a series of excellent illustrations which will help us get a hold of the awe factor. And then he quotes some really excellent theologians which help us get a hold of the intimacy factor as well. Initially, um, he quotes John Calvin, who said that when Christians pray, they are to have a sense of seriousness and magnitude. Calvin emphasizes that prayer is an audience and conversation with the almighty God of the universe. He says there is nothing worse than to be devoid of awe. Now, I don't know about you, but I find the awe thing harder than the intimacy thing. I find it quite easy to be a cheerful, charismatic Christian who just bounces into the Father's presence and is like, hello, here I am, good morning. Uh, don't know why my voice gets higher in the morning. Don't know why that does that. But I, I find it very easy to be intimate with God. I find that bit quite easy. But then I, when I was doing this, just getting hold of the awe of God is quite a different thing. And I think I'm going to take some training at this. I'm going to have to dis discipline myself to remember to read that Isaiah text and remember to get back into a position of awe and then bound into the intimacy. But in order to regain that awe, or perhaps have, uh, you know, resurrect that awe in a way, uh, we have to get a proper understanding of what it actually means to fear God. The fear of God obviously means to be afraid, but of what and why? Now, it's natural to think in your mind that fear of God means to be afraid of punishment. However, we know from the scriptures that God's perfect love drives out fear and that there is no condemnation for those who put their faith in Christ. So what then should a Christian be afraid of regarding God in prayer? Well, I'll read you Tim Keller's response to this question from his book, which provides us with three excellent illustrations. He says, think of it like this. Imagine that you are suddenly introduced to some person you have always admired enormously perhaps someone you have hero-worshipped. You reach out to shake her hand, and suddenly it hits you. You can't believe you are actually meeting her. 
You discover, to your embarrassment, that you are trembling and sweating, and when you try to speak, you are out of breath. What is going on? You are not afraid of being hurt or punished. Rather, you are genuinely afraid of doing something stupid or saying something that is inappropriate to the person and the occasion. Your joyful admiration has a fearful aspect to it. You are in awe. Therefore, you don't want to mess up. That is something we experience even in the presence of an admirable human being. How much more is, the proper response, is this the proper response to God? In Kenneth Graham's classic, The Wind and the Willows, there's a chapter, The Piper at, Gate, at the Gates of Dawn, in which the characters Mole and Rat meet their animal's deity, the god Pan. And, hear, and they hear him playing his pipes. They are stunned. Rat, he found breath to whisper, shaking, Are you afraid? Afraid, murmured Rat, his eyes shining with unutterable love. Afraid of him? Oh, never, never. And yet, and yet, oh, Mole, I am afraid. That captures the concept of fear of God as well as anything I know. We could say that fear of punishment is a self-absorbed kind of fear. It happens to people wrapped up in themselves, those who believe the gospel who believe that they are recipients of undeserved, unshakable grace, grow in a paradoxically loving yet joyful fear because of unutterable love and joy in God. We tremble with the privilege of being in his presence and with an intense longing to honor him when we are there. We are deeply afraid of grieving him. To put it another way, you would be quite afraid if someone put a beautiful, priceless, ancient Ming Dynasty vase in your hands. You wouldn't be trembling with fear about the vase hurting you, but about your hurting it. Of course, we can't really harm God, but a Christian should be intensely concerned not to grieve or dishonor the one who is so glorious and who did so much for us. It's a great book and a great quote. And I love those three examples, meeting the celebrity, the wind in the willows, and the vase. They all point us to a place of joyful fear and awe. And I found them really hopeful, helpful, and I hope you do too. But having gained that appropriate level of seriousness and magnitude and awe when entering into prayer, we're now invited into that intimate relationship with our Father by the Spirit. Romans 8, 14 to 16 explains this well when it says, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you're, you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. We are God's children and we're there to depend on him. And Naomi was talking to our youth group on Friday, did brilliantly, and she spoke about this. She said, look, we're not called to be adults of God. <laughs> we're called to be children of God. And it was an excellent example, an excellent point we're there to depend on him, to cry, Abba, Father, by the Holy Spirit. And Paul, the apostle, writes about the Holy Spirit here, the other member of the Trinity uh, who humans receive when we put our faith in Jesus. And if you think about it, it's outrageous. It's outrageous that God would put some of his own character, some of himself, into us by bringing about adoption by his Spirit. It says, the Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship. 
No longer slaves who live in fear. We are sons and daughters and safe and able to have that intimate relationship with God. Being children of God does enable us to have a unique father, father, uh, daughter or father-son relationship. And just when reflecting on this, uh, three things came to mind. The first thing was honesty. We can go to our father and be honest about how we're feeling. If something bad happens to you, go to him and tell him how you're feeling in that moment. Tell him your response, your reaction. Whether you're angry, upset, joyful, or frustrated, he can take it. He's big enough to embrace you and reassure you that he's got it under control. The other thing was vulnerability. When we pray, we become vulnerable. And with a father-son, father-daughter relationship, there is freedom to be vulnerable if both parties allow. And the last thing that came to mind was trust. Praying the Lord's Prayer reveals a trust in who God is when we pray. And lastly, one last part from Keller's book, where he combines the writings of Luther, Calvin, and Augustine on the Lord's Prayer. Tim Keller wrote this, quoting Luther initially. Before we proceed into prayer, we are to say to God, you have taught us to regard you and call upon you as one father of us all. Although you could rightly and properly be a severe judge over us. Therefore, we should start by asking God to implant in our hearts a comforting trust in your fatherly love. And Calvin agrees, by the great sweetness of this name, Father, he frees us from all distrust. That's the last point, finding the balance and realizing where you stand before God. And in summary, Point one was become in awe of God. Point two was experience intimacy with God the Father. And point three was find the balance. Realize your standing before God. And we find the balance in prayer when we start the Lord's Prayer, particularly when we realize our standing as Christians. One, as human beings in awe of a holy and mighty God. And two, as beloved adopted children of our Father in heaven, the King of the universe. And I've got... Three points of application um, for you. You might want to develop these. There's probably a lot, a lot more you could take out um, from that in terms of applying this. Um, but my first one was take time to become reverent before moving on from the first line of the Our Father uh, prayer. Number two was if you can, spend some time worshipping before you pray, bringing yourself to awe. This is what I'm going to try and do some more. Just put headphones in and just start worshipping God with my eyes closed. I'm going to try and do that more. And lastly, don't forget to be honest and vulnerable and rest in the Father's love. My most boring prayer times are when I just reel off a list of things that I'm thinking about and want God to help me with. Uh, and I'll be honest with you, sometimes I forget to be honest with God and I just reel off the stuff that's important at work or just the stuff that's important with family and leave everything else out and I I might have gone through something that week, and yet I deny, to, I deny him from knowing about it by not telling him, even though he does know. But that would be my last piece of application. Be honest, vulnerable, and rest in the Father's love, because he loves you. So we conclude with a question. What is your standing before God? If you are not a Christian here this morning, do you acknowledge that you are a person of unclean lips and in need of saving from the consequences of sin? And if that's you, you can talk to me afterwards. Go to the Connect desk, let us know. And if you're a Christian, do you need to consider again the seriousness and magnitude of coming before our Father in heaven that should inspire both awe and intimacy that flow from knowing the Father's character? In conclusion, 
that little lad in Morrison's, uh, I mentioned at the beginning, he began with awe and excitement, with joy when he thought he saw his father, whose character he knew enough about in order to call out to him with confidence, simple confidence. And my prayer would be for us as we continue this series, as we go into this week, that with the Lord's Prayer, we would know the father's character better so that we would become the same as that little boy and cry out in simplicity and confidence to him. Amen.